everyone and welcome to U.S. History. My name is Dr. Kira Lovell and today we're talking about labor and citizenship in the early American Republic, specifically focusing on yeoman farmers and Lowell Mill. Yeoman farmers and Lowell Mill. Sorry, it's a tongue twister. Um, so let's get started. On the first slide, you can see Constitution. And so I know we're sort of backtracking a little bit, um, but uh, we have the Revolutionary War, and so once America wins the revolution, they build a constitution because they want a democratic form of government. So what is in the constitution? Now this is the shortest lecture on the constitution ever. Um, also, my apologies if you hear some clickety-clack in the background like this. That's my dog chewing a bone, so please just disregard that. Okay, so in the Constitution, what can we see? What do they want? Um, they wanted limited government, so they wanted people and their elected representatives to have a greater say uh, than top-down, meaning like from the king or from God laws. So they want limited big government. They don't want a king coming in and telling them everything. They want to be able to um, have local representatives to be able to elect them, uh, have those local representatives be able to reflect their own needs. Um, this is really important because this aspect of states' rights versus federal rights, meaning like what local governments say versus the federal government, is really important still today. We still argue about this, especially in terms of issues, for example, like um, human rights or civil rights issues, for example, like the right to gay marriage, um, has been largely left up to the states uh, until it was approved by the federal court. Um, now it's going back, it sort of seems, that's what the word is, going back to states' rights. Um, issue with abortion as well. Um, laws on abortion can differ from state to state, meaning like in one state it can be a complete ban, and in another state it can be absolutely not banned at all. Um, so there's a, a, I can see why they wanted limited government, because they felt as the colonies that they were being treated differently than in the UK, and so they wanted to have smaller elected representatives. However, it has cr created a lot of problems so that we still argue about today. Checks and balances. They wanted to have three separate branches of government, judicial that um, judge, that's all they do is judge court cases, executive meaning like the president, uh, and the legislative branch meaning that it is the uh, uh, legislators that you elect that create the law. So um, essentially how it works is the executive branch is the president. Um, they get to appoint the judges. Um, the judges decide if the laws that are being passed by the legislative branch are constitutional. So it's supposed to all um, form checks and balances, meaning that they create no method of absolute rule. Um, however, again, this is similarly still complicated today um, in which we have, for example, if executive branch, if the president gets to nominate the judicial branch um, and there's no term limit, meaning that you could be a judge on the Supreme Court for the rest of your life, potentially, you know, 30, 40 years, that a lot of stuff in American history changes over decades, especially um, over 40 years, um, even in terms of, for example, like uh, 40 years ago, um, we 
we don't have gay marriage. Uh, we we are just uh, we've forty years ago. We still have some schools that aren't even completely racially integrated yet in the U.S. Um, there's a lot of changes over time, and yet it doesn't really, the checks and balances system that we have doesn't really account for those. That's probably because in this time period, people really didn't live that long. Like the average lifespan was definitely about uh, max 50 years. Um, and so it's sort of, I, maybe that's their assumption as to why Supreme Court justices should have a right to live their, or be elected their entire lives, whereas the president can only be elected um, at this point, um, there, I don't know if there are term limits in early American history, but, at, uh, now currently in the U S you, a president can only serve two consecutive terms. They can take a break after that and serve more, uh, terms. However, they can only serve two consecutive terms and the legislative branches because they're elected can be reelected as many times as we want. There are no term limits. Uh, there are specific term limits as far as like, for example, if you're in the Senate, it is versus if you're in the representatives, it's four years to two years. Um, and so you're constantly being reelected, but you can be reelected as many times as you want. So there are definitely problems with checks and balances. So, for example, even if we're looking at the issue of abortion with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, um, there just because the president has the ability to be able to um choose the Supreme Court justice doesn't mean, um, I'm rambling a little bit, but what I mean to say is, for example, like during President Obama's uh, term, um, uh, Obama wanted to uh, uh, choose someone to the Supreme Court, you still need the Senate to confirm that justice, and because it was a Republican-controlled Senate, they couldn't, Obama technically couldn't uh, nominate someone to the Supreme Court. So it's a really comp. It, it's not a seamless terms of checks and balances. It's definitely different from a monarchy, but we still have critical issues today uh, because of the structure. And then the last but not least is popular sovereignty is um, one of the biggest concepts in the Constitution. It's the idea of the rule of the people and that people get to vote for their representative. So the next slide says paternalism. So uh, paternalism is a behavior by a person, organization, or state which limits some person or group's liberty or autonomy for their own good. Uh, paternalism can also imply that the behavior is against or regardless of the will of a person, or also that the behavior expresses an attitude of superiority. So uh, paternalism, potter, the beginning of that word, um, is the rooted in father, like the paterfamilias is the, you know, the head of the family. Um, and so paternalism is uh, sort of best colloquially described as like father knows best. Um, if your parent, if your father ever said like, this is for your own good, I know what's best for you, that's paternalism. So one of the questions on the quiz that you're going to be answering is how does this ideology of paternalism shape labor in the new republic? So I want to go ahead and give you this question now so that way you can think about it as we talk about the lecture today. Okay, perfect. So the next slide, it says the context of the Industrial Revolution. Now, uh, the American Revolution is the same context as the Industrial Revolution in England, which means like it's a little bit... Um, 
later in the U.S. So Samuel Slater is known as the father of the Industrial Revolution. He's also called by the U.K. Slater the traitor. So in the U.S. he's known as the father of the Industrial Revolution, but in the U.K. Slater the traitor. And why is that? So Samuel Slater is actually an apprentice uh, in the UK at a factory. He steals the manufacturing plans from England where Industrial Revolution is already underway. Now, manufacturing plans, like he steals the plans of a factory. He steals the blueprint of a factory. Now, today that seems so silly that that would be something worth stealing unless you're going to rob a factory. But in this time period, factories are new. Um, and before this point, we just have apprentices maybe, uh, working in small shops. Um, uh, but now is the point in which we're building larger buildings and we're having, uh, larger amounts of workers, uh, work in these factories. It's a very new concept. There's actually a lot of criticism in society for fear that if you're not in control of your own labor, um, what does that mean for you as a person? Like, are you even human anymore? And so factories are a little bit tricky, and um, because of the criticism, they're really kept under wraps. Uh, not only for the criticism, but because um, factory owners don't want their plans to be taken by someone else. So they don't want um, knowledge of the machinery to be given to other people and to be sold. They don't want how the factory is set up to be sold to other people. So Samuel Slater is an apprentice. He steals the manufacturing plans for this factory in England runs away to the U.S. and decides he's going to make his fortune by creating his own factory. So we have some of the first factories that are tested in the U.S. in the 1790s in the North and the South. Now, in the South, they flunk. Um, factories in the U.S. flunk in the 1790s in the South because um, they are working on slave labor. And so what you will find is that in the South, where there's all this slave labor, there it's tough to create any competition. Um, there's not as much of a, um, a, a large enough working class population in, who will take these factory jobs. Uh, and so because if you want the cheapest amount of labor, you can do slave labor. But the problem is that um, because they're not being paid, they're not going to work very hard because they're trying to resist. They're trying to, in not working hard, it's a form of protest against the factory owners and their enslavers. Now in the north, you find more traction because you have a larger portion of the population that are working class white people that are not enslaved, but they need jobs, um, particularly women, which is what we're going to look at today. Uh, we have uh, Waltham, who in the Lowell system of factory-centered company towns starts, um, and that means that these companies, for example, like Lowell Mill, um, was created in the 1820s, and what they do is they create Lowell Mill in the middle of Lowell, Massachusetts, and so this town is considered like self-sustaining, in which people that work at the mill, um, everything is available at the mill, so there is... Um, you know, a places where you can dine, there's places where you sleep, there's places where you work, there's places where you go to church, there's places where you go to school. Like it's considered this factory town in which the town is existing because of the factory and the factory is sort of uh, the blood circulation for the town. 
let's take a look at the next slide in which you can see kind of what these factories look like in this time period, like Lowell Mill circa 1820s. The machines are huge, so Lowell Mill is a cotton mill, um, and what you can see, find, is that there's huge machines at the time. Um, they are not powered by electricity, though. They are powered by water. So if you look at the next slide, um, it shows you for this textile mill how water functioned to support these huge machines because there's no electricity at the time. So moving water turns this wheel, which is number one. It powers the wheel, therefore the turning wheel powers the machines through a system of gears and belts. Um, carding and drawing machines, which are number two, straighten raw cotton fibers and twist them loosely. Uh, number three, you have spinning machines that spin the fibers into yarn or thread. Um, and then finally at the top, you have power looms that weave yarn into cloth. But all of it is powered by water. Water, um, as you know, like running through a small area can speed up force. Uh, and so it it's surprising how this entire thing is fueled by water, but it's a really huge, it becomes a really huge company. So in 1835, Lowell had 22 mills. This entire town, this tiny town of Lowell, Massachusetts, had 22 mills just like this. And by 1855, Lowell had 52 mills employing more than 13,000 workers and producing 2.25 million yards of cotton cloth a week. So you can go, in this time period, you can start a factory in the middle of nowhere, create a town, drawing all of this sort of white working class labor that needs that needs money. That's the thing. Um, and you can recruit thousands of people to be able to produce cotton for the world. So let's look a little bit more closely at Lowell Mill, Massachusetts. So if you go to the next slide, it is a factory based around tight-knit New England family. Um, so the point was that they wanted to, in recruiting these workers, um, frame it as if the owners of the factory are their parents looking out for them. Um, the factory initially hired child workers aged 7 through 12, later whole families. Um, they recruited daughters of propertied New England farmers between the ages of 15 and 30. So if you think back to The Crucible, that film about the Salem witch trials, you can see a whole bunch of teenage girls. A whole bunch of them. And as I was saying before, if you're a teenage girl, you have no right. Um, you have no rights to anything. You are considered property of your father and you're just waiting to be property of your husband, okay? So teenage girls are not worth anything in this capitalist patriarchal society. Um, and so they're seen as expendable, especially if you have more than one girl. Like if you have like three sisters, you know, four daughters, um, they are only going to be bringing you money if they marry someone wealthy. Um, if you're in a town with not a lot of wealthy people, it's a little bit harder for you. So you're sort of like, what can I do with this girl? Uh, so you send her to work in the factory. Uh, girls were required to live on site in company boarding houses. There were strict codes of conduct with fines for violations, meaning that, for example, if you were showed up to work late, you were fined. If you didn't go to church, 
um, you were fine. If you didn't go to Sunday school, you were fine. They had an 80-hour work week, Monday through Saturday, 5 a.m. to 7 p.m., and they would have bells, for example, to um, go, when to go to school outside of work, when to go to church outside of work, and so on. Um, the goal, though, was to mold minds of young women while taking advantage of their skills in the domestic arts. So the way that they were marketing it was there's essentially this entire population of teenage girls that are trained in weaving, spinning thread, creating fabric, and things like that. And yet, there's not enough for them to do at their homes. So these factory owners are like, perfect. What we're going to do is we're going to create jobs in which these girls are doing just what they're supposed to be doing. They are essentially reinforcing their gender roles. If women are supposed to be working on the domestic arts like sewing, we're going to keep them sewing. So it seems like they're working out in public, but they're not. We're going to have them very contained. Um, they are not allowed to leave. You don't have to worry about them seeing any men in public. Um, it's this large population of teenage girls that are contained. We're going to make sure that uh, they go to church, that they're pious, that they're trained in um, certain classes in school to make them a better wife. They'll work here for a few years, and then they'll be ready for you to marry off to some rich man. And now they've had more experience, so maybe they'll be worth a little bit more. So that was their pitch of why teenage girls were the best fit for this situation. Now... Uh, if you go to the next slide, there's also a profit motive. And so what I want you to do is that by 1834, we have the first strikes that are starting at, at Lowell Mill. And those are teenage girls leading those strikes. Um, so if you click on that link, pause here, pause the podcast and click on that link and you can watch this. Um, it's actually an actress that is reading a primary source um, from this time period talking about how they organized the strike. So go do that and then return to the podcast. Ding! So you've just listened to the video um, and it really describes how girls even in this time period were excited. They felt like they were powerful, that their voices united together meant that they were significant, finally feeling heard in the world. Um, and so in the 1830s, the reason why there's a strike is because in the 1830s, the um, mill starts forcing the mill girls to pay for their own room and board and they lower the wages. So whereas before you're required to live in the room uh, and on the mill and so you don't have to pay for a room, but in the, by the 1830s they're thinking actually we should charge families this money. Um, we'll just take it out of their wages uh, and so therefore we'll be able to make a little bit more off of this. By the 1840s, Lowell Mill starts bringing in Irish immigrants as strike breakers. Um, the reason why is because in Ireland there is a the potato famine going on right then. And so I, the Irish are starving to death. Um, they mostly eat potatoes, and, which is honestly like a lot of cultures in the world. But however, they have this, um, I believe it's a disease 
that starts impacting the potatoes and so they can't eat them and so people are starving to death and so therefore we see in the u.s a flood of immigration from ireland at this time period uh, especially people starving and needing work so at the ports for example like in new york city um uh, companies are advertising there meaning like you might have just had like a few months on this boat you get off the boat and uh, there is a company representative waiting there saying, if you want to work, if you need a job immediately, we can help you get to Lowell, Massachusetts, where you can have um, a job starting tomorrow. You just need to be able to speak English. Um, we are, for example, Lowell Mill is only allowing white workers at this time period, especially white women. And so um, you just need to be able to fit in that. So if you are a single woman or a teenage girl, this is going to be a really good fit for you. And by strike breakers, what I mean by that is because in 1830s, there's strikes. And so how they do it is just as the video described, um, you have to turn out. So that means like you have to leave. You have to walk out of the mill and you need everyone on your side because if only one person walks out, that doesn't really have any change. Um, for example, if you, if all the students at UAC, uh, if one student walks out saying like, we don't like the way this is happening, it doesn't really matter. You need all of the students to walk out um, for you to make real change. Now, that's what's called a strike. A strike means that you are um, not, not working. Um, a si I actually study a lot of different sort of methods of protest, so there's lots of different ways in which that you can protest at work. Um, you can have a sit-in, or not necessarily at work, there's a lot of ways you can protest in general. So you can have a sit-in in which you, um, let's say at the mill, you every one of them sat in. Um, you sat you sit in the mill and you wait for someone to forcibly remove you. The only problem is that in this time period, um, if you are striking, um, the police aren't necessarily used as a way to like bring justice in society. Oftentimes factories or rich people will hire police um, to physically assault strikers, to physically assault workers. It's completely legal to like shoot to kill in this time period. Um, so if you have an entire population of uh, girls that are striking, they bring in Irish immigrants, cheaper labor to break those strikes, meaning um, they, even though the regular mill population is not working, we're going to hire new workers at a cheaper rate to fill in for you. And so therefore, um, because we have workers, fill in workers, we don't have to meet your demands. So the next slide is a, pic a slide from the Lowell Offering, December 1945. Um, despite working 80-hour weeks and being completely exhausted, they still had time to like have a literary magazine, which is beyond me. Um, they had a literary magazine at Lowell Mill for years. Um, and so this is just an excerpt from that uh, magazine, literary magazine. Uh, it's a letter from Mary Paul, age 15, and this letter was written December 21st, 1845. Um, okay, so I'm going to read it to you. Dear Father, I received your letter on Thursday the 14th with, with much pleasure. I am well, which is one comfort. My life and health are spared while others are cut off. Last Thursday, one girl fell down and broke her neck, which caused instant death. She was going in or coming out of the mill and slipped down, it being very icy. The same day, a man was killed by the cars. 
Um, I think, pause here, I think she's talking about these transportation, like rail cars. Um, so if you got caught in between the cars, you would, you would die that way. Another had nearly half his ribs broken. Another was killed by falling down and having a bale of cotton fall on him. And another pause. This is about a bale of cotton, weighs about 200 pounds. Um, let me tell you, 200 pounds to kilograms, hold on one second. 200 pounds to kilograms is 90, 91 kilograms. Um, so this huge bale of hay, it's really, really big, can fall on you and crush you. Um, last Tuesday we were paid in all, I had $6.60 paid $4.68 for boards. That means of the $6.60 that she was paid, $4.68 was deducted from it for room and board. So for her meals and for her housing. She says, I can work as fast as any girl in the room. I think that the factory is the best place for me, best place for me, and any girl wants employment, I advise them to come to Lowell. So in your quiz, what you're going to be doing is uh, answering uh, the question about Mary. It says on the quiz, let me pull it up for you. Uh, why would girls like Mary write home to their parents defending their jobs despite the harsh working conditions? I do not want you to presume that she is lying. Assume that she is being earnest. So why would she still defend this job despite people dying, despite having most of her wages taken away, taken away from her, it being like a really dangerous job? Why is she still defending it? And then the next slide is your last question on the quiz, which is about the yeoman farmer. Um, the next lecture is gonna pick up in describing the yeoman farmer, but what I want you to do um, is the question on the quiz is what are some key characteristics defining the mythological figure of the yeoman farmer as represented in this image? Now, it's hard to see this image a little bit, but if you go to the quiz, there's a larger version of it. Um, and so that way you can see more closely. And without knowing anything, I want you to look at the image and be able to tell me exactly what you see. Um, so for example, I'm gonna model this for you. Um, in this image, you can see a man, a singular white man with a shovel. Um, he, what do I mean, what is significant about that? So this is in an era in which, just like we just saw, we have the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. We have factories. We have the beginning of large machines. And yet he is not using a large machine on his farm. He is using just a shovel. So a key characteristic of the yeoman farmer is that he is doing his own labor. He is in control of the shovel. Um, he is powerful and strong, uh, and so therefore his work is a result of his own body. Now, that is one example. However, I want you to come up with more. The question on the quiz says, look at the image for 30 seconds. 
if this person in the image is considered the ideal American, what is the ideal American according to this image? I want you to give me three characteristics of the ideal American from the image, not what you've Googled, and then describe them in four full sentences and how you conclude that from the image. So don't include that about the shovel. Um, that's really, really important because as we're going to see, this is an era of enslavement. So him talking about or visually expressing that he is doing his own labor and that is an ideal citizenship, like he's in control of his own labor, um, that is really significant in an era in which millions of people are enslaved in the U.S. So it says a lot about how the ideal American is in charge of their own labor. I want you to give me three different characteristics of the ideal American from that image. Now, if you click on that link there, because you don't actually see like the full, um, the full image there, if you click on it, it should expand. I'm testing this out right now. Oh, so you'll see it's um, just disregard it. It's a, uh, you have to scroll through. Uh, it's an article. The best image that I could find is from this article, but on page five, you'll find the image and you can zoom in more there. Um, so it is a recruitment brochure for a Grange Hall uh, association meeting um, from that time period. So what I want you to do is that is one of the questions on your quiz is being able to tell me what you see in that image and how it represents the ideal American. And last slide is in case I haven't said it 18 million times, do not forget to do the labor in the earlier public quiz. You take it only on Google, not on Canvas. And I will see you in the next lecture. Bye now.